hello and welcome to the Spring and Equestrian podcast. This is season four of the podcast and I'm your host, Jessica Parr. I'm a professional rider and trainer in Ontario, Canada, and you can find and follow us at Spring and Act on Instagram or www.springandact.com is our website. This podcast is meant to help you build your skills and confidence as a rider and also your relationship with your horse. I hope that some of these episodes can help you navigate the industry and just bring you a little bit of advice and inspiration when it comes to all things equestrian. So I hope that you can sit back and relax and enjoy the show. Hi guys, I'm so excited to bring you this interview with Justin Ridgewell. Justin is an FEI dressage rider, trainer, and M-level judge at Brayburn Farms in Ontario. We talked all about his journey into the world of dressage, the ups and downs of his riding career, and horses that he has brought through the levels. I asked him his opinion on training and fundamentals, and he had some really interesting perspectives. And he also articulated certain concepts in a different way, which I always think is so valuable for you guys. It's always helpful to hear um, different riders explain the way things should feel. And he also walked me through some common occurrences he sees as a judge, ways that we can improve in the comp- competition ring, um, and also things we can do if we're interested in you know, becoming professional riders. Basically, there was so many interesting perspectives that he had, and I felt that this was such a valuable episode, not only for you guys, but for me. I learned so much, so I hope that you enjoy this. If you do, make sure you go let Justin know, give him a follow, and without further ado, I'll let you get into the episode. Just wanted to start off with your history and how you came up in terms of your experience with riding. I know that, I believe that dressage was a transition for you a little bit later like not when you were a kid so just kind of to that and then how that led to what you're doing right now so I grew up uh just outside of Windsor the horse industry down there is it's not when when I was down there you know I mean that was quite a while ago but uh it was fairly small and the way I kind of got into horses is I uh I always really liked horses I don't know why I was just drawn to horses for some reason as a kid but my parents could never afford riding lessons or anything like that so it was just kind of always you know you drive by the horse fields and you just kind of like glare out the window and um so the way I kind of got started is I started volunteering at a a farm called uh, Wetra at the time which is Windsor Essex Therapeutic Riding Association so I started volunteering on on my weekends when I was like 10 just to go in and kind of work with the the school horses and stuff um you know, I did things like just brushing them and leading them from the paddocks and all that. But it was just kind of a, a, a foot in the door to work with horses and be around them and stuff like that. And from there, I met uh, two young girls around the same age as me that were working at that farm, basically to kind of cover the board on their horses and, you know, befriended them and eventually started just kind of going out on weekends and mucking stalls with them and just kind of, again, just to kind of be in the barn. I, I, I was truly that barn rat you know, that term that you kind of hear. And like I said, the girls were working off their boards. So there was the, you know, they, I wasn't looking to get paid or anything like that, but in, in, in payment, they started uh, letting me ride their horse. The older sister would, uh, would, would give me riding lessons and, and every once in a while, just kind of throw me on her horse or the other, the sister's horse. And uh, it kind of just grew from there. Um, and then I eventually just, I rode with them for quite a while through high school um, hunter jumper stuff in Windsor, which is like, you know, basically schooling type shows. Uh, like you said, I was never involved in dressage as a, as a child or in my teenage years. I actually spent a, a year in Michigan as a cowboy <laughs> before I started doing dressage. The, uh, the, the year that I turned uh, 21, I was in Michigan working at a dude ranch, um, doing trail rides and cattle drives and all that kind of stuff. And um, the kind of the way I got into dressage, I guess, is uh, a friend of mine had moved up to the Toronto area to work with um, a, a pretty high level dressage rider. They were looking for another staff member. So I started talking to her about that and it ended up they couldn't bring another person on, but they connected me with um, Belinda Trussell, who, you know, has been on Olympic teams and world equestrian teams and all that. And uh, so I, I contacted her and ended up moving up to the Stovo area to work for her 
um, as her, her groom and working student. And I was there for seven years working with Belinda. And that's kind of how I got into dressage. I was, I was 21 when I started riding dressage. The interview process was, was very scary in my eyes. You know, she, uh, she had me up to Toronto and kind of threw me on one of the dressage horses and just kind of said, go. And uh, like I'd been riding Western for the year leading, leading up to that. So it was quite a, quite a jump to go from Western trail horses to uh, some pretty top-notch dressage horses. But um, the experience working with, with Belinda and with the horses at the time really kind of pushed, pushed my dr dressage career forward quickly because I got to ride some pretty, uh, pretty highly trained horses to have, have lessons on, um, to hone my skills on, I guess. Yeah, that's kind of how I, I got into dressage. And from there, I met um, John McPherson, who I still train with now. I, you know, we've been training together about 15 years. Um, he, had, he had kind of moved his business into Oakcrest, which was Belinda's farm at the time, or still is. But uh, John kind of took over helping the working students while Belinda was in Europe campaigning and uh, just kind of grew from there. Now I'm uh, living in Collingwood and I manage um, a farm called Braeburn Farms um, and uh, I'm one of the, the principal riders there and compete for the farm. And that's where I am today, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. So do you work closely with John still at Braeburn then? Is he there too? Yeah, yeah, we both uh, train full-time out of Braeburn. Um, that's our, our base. So we're in Collingwood most of the year and then we also have a, a farm in Florida. So we do travel south for the winters to, to continue training and competing down there. Yeah. So, okay. I have many questions now, but um, <laughs> one of them is, what was your initial reaction to sitting on, I'm sure back when you were interviewing for Belinda, was that the first time that you'd sat on any type of like dressage trained horse? Yes and no. Um, I guess to that level of, of yeah. trained horse, you know, <clears throat> one of the girls that I, that I had mentioned, she did mainly dressage as a kid. So um, she had a thoroughbred that she, she competed um, in dressage, but I'd say that was probably the first time sitting on like a high level trained by a professional type dressage horse. And she even told me, Belinda told me in the interview that she was putting me on kind of a tricky horse just to see where I was at with my riding. And like I said, it was, it was quite a scary experience being, uh, you know, a young kid from Windsor where, you know, like I said, the, the horse world down there is, is quite small um, to coming up to a farm that looks like you could eat off the floor. Um, it's, I don't know if you've seen Oakcrest before, it's, it's, it's a huge, beautiful farm. And Belinda had just been to the Athens Olympics like that year, right? So- No pressure. I, <laughs> I, I interviewed with her in 2004 and she was on the 2004 team in Athens. So she had been back in Canada for a month or two out of the Olympics. And, and it was just such a like starstruck moment of like, you know, this is a, an Olympian and I'm going to get on one of her horses. And it was just, it was a humbling experience for sure. <laughs> but yeah, that was probably the first kind of like well-trained dressage horse or top, like a top level horse that I had kind of sat on. And I, growing up, I never thought that dressage would interest me. Mm -hmm. I don't know why it was, you know, it's, I think it's common with, with kids is that you're instantly drawn to like jumping or eventing because it's like fast and fun and, and all that. But the more I got into the dressage, the more I just, like fell in love with it just like I'm very type a and it blends well to being yeah. a dressage rider. so technical yeah it's it's Maybe so technical yeah that's so cool so I'm sure that you have then in your experience dealt with feeling like maybe you aren't super confident in what you're doing or having like little bits of imposter syndrome or just feeling anxious has there ever been a time that sticks out to you where you really dealt with that and how did you manage to kind of push through yeah I think anyone that is is riding for a career or just riding in general you're going to deal with stuff like that you know especially today with social media and you kind of you see the how perfect everyone is on social media and you kind of start to sell second guess yourself or, or question kind of what you're doing but um, I think just having a really strong support team behind you is is really big you know just just kind of knowing that there's people that are going to be there after you exit the ring, even if you did horrible that, you know, that you still have that support and just, you know, with me still like every day I've tell you know, I've put the work in that I'm here for a reason and I'm, I'm doing this job because I've, because I've earned it and I've worked towards it and it's not, it hasn't been something that's been just given. So 
you know, you kind of have to look at the positives as well in, in the, the situation. You know, yeah, you, you can kind of have a bad ride and start to question what you're doing, but you've probably had a lot of positive rides that led to this point as well. So you kind of just have to look at all that. Yeah, for sure. You know? So when you are setting up to go into some big classes or big divisions that you've been working towards for a long time, is there ever a moment where you still feel really nervous? Like, do you still get nervous when you go in the ring? For me, it's, uh, I really like competing. Um, I have that like, like drive. I like, you know, I, I like to be in the show ring and, and kind of show off a little bit yeah. type thing, but oh, for sure. Like, you know, especially in Florida, you know, like some of the warm-up classes, you're, you're in a warm-up ring with like five, six past Olympians that you, you know, that have won medals or, you know, like you're, you're kind of warming up next to those people. And, and you really have to keep telling yourself that for that seven minutes, that's your ring. You know, you've, you've also put in the work, you've also earned the spot to be here. And, and you got to just kind of keep in that headset and try not to let whoever you're riding next to or whoever's standing at the ring, right? Like some of the, again, some of the coaches, like there's been times where I'm warming up and I see Carl Hester over there coaching someone and you're like, how am I supposed to go in the ring after that? But, you know, you kind of just, you, you put your time in and you kind of just got to try to stay strong and try to just put that out of your, put that out of your head. Right. Like, and yeah. you know, like a lot of times I get in the ring and it's like, it's just, it's just me in the ring. Like I'm at home, you know, hoping for that, that kind of feeling, but not always, but, uh, but yeah, for me, I, I don't feel, I mean, I get like, you know, a little bit nervous. I think every competitor should have that little bit of, you know, that nerves that you can kind of turn into like a positive, but I don't, uh, I don't get like severely nervous. No. And once you get going, it just like becomes your world and that's what you're. Yeah. Yeah. Like there's been times where I've gone in the ring and come out and thought, how did that happen? Like, yeah, like, because you just kind of go into this, this zone. Right. And, uh, and hope for the best. (laughs) For sure. So, um, we all kind of can understand the unpredictability of horses and also in terms of soundness. I mean, with high level dressage horses, you're asking a lot for them physically, not the same as like meter 40, meter 50, meter 60 horses, but definitely a lot physically for horses. So have you run into kind of derailment in your career with injuries with horses that you have been having high hopes for, or even yourself, like if you've ever experienced something like that um, physically, injuring yourself and have you how do you manage to kind of mentally wrap your head around that and move on to something else when that happens yeah so I've I've had both experiences with personal injury and and horses also being kind of derailed I I severed my ACL in half probably 12 years ago and didn't really realize how much it affected me until you know the last couple years with uh the, the kind of the older you get the the more you start feeling these nicks and especially being equestrian you know the the toll on your body so um having that injury um I wouldn't say like derailed completely but it did affect you know like um it took two years for me to get my surgery to have it repaired and then I had a second surgery because I had uh bone chips you know similar to like bone chips that you'd find in a horse you know like yeah. I had I had bone chips in my knee from the injury that had to be removed as well. So I have had two surgeries on it. Being a dressage rider, I don't think that would have affect that affected me as much as say I was a jumper because you're not up in your stirrups as much. Um, I think that if I was a jumper or eventer, that would have really, that would have really set me back, but you know, not standing in my stirrups as much as a dressage rider didn't, uh, didn't take a toll as much as it could have, but, but definitely did kind of throw a wrench into the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, I mean, horses are horses, right? Like, unfortunately injuries happen and you can bubble wrap and try to prevent as much as possible, but they're as big as they are. They're such sensitive animals. Last fall, actually, I had a pretty big, uh, derailment. Um, I, I've, I've had a horse for 14 years now. Um, it's owned by John. And when I, when we were at Oakcrest, I got the opportunity to kind of take him over as my project horse. Um, his name's Welly. Anyone that's been around Paul Grave has knows Welly because he, for a while he was a little bit uh, crazy, <laughs> but at the time that's all I had to ride. And, and it was a great experience to kind of learn on him. Um, I took him over as, as a four-year-old and uh, he's now turning 19 this year. 
I, I ended up showing him Grand Prix. So that was a huge achievement to take him and bring him along. The next one hopefully won't take 15 years to get to that point, but being a rider trying to learn how to ride the Grand Prix and how to train the Grand Prix on a horse that doesn't know the Grand Prix um, is also a very humbling experience. <laughs> but unfortunately last fall we had, uh, we, he foundered, which was uh, really, it's something I've never dealt with. It was very slight at, at, at the start and um, it, it got pretty bad. Um, so he, I was actually concerned we were gonna have to put him down to be honest. Like there was times where it was really quite, uh, quite hard to see, uh, but he is, you know, he's still around and the, the girls at the farm have started uh, tack walking him now. Um, so he's to the point where we can start tack walking him. You know, being 19, I don't, I don't know if I'll be able to compete him again. Um, which is really unfortunate because I was really getting to the point where I was feeling confident in the Grand Prix. Like I've never competed the Grand Prix on another horse. So this was my first time in the ring doing it. So I, I think I, I did about four, four or five in Florida and we, we did well. We won a couple classes at some of the shows. So I was really kind of geared up for summer and then obviously 2020 happened. So the show season got, got bumped. So we're, I wasn't able to show through the summer of 2020 and then the fall he uh he did founder so definitely a derailment on uh on that but hopefully he can he can come back and be ridden and you know we can still keep going with him but you know will he be able to compete at that level i it's hard to say right now you know Hey guys, I wanted to take a second to talk to you about Anatomic Equestrian Products. Anatomic is actually owned by my friend Taylor Stafford. She was on the podcast in season two if you want to go back and have a listen, but her company is designing and creating innovative products for your horse right here in Canada. They prioritize your horse's comfort and performance and look nothing like anything else on the market. You guys will see in a lot of my photos that I actually have their solid grip saddle pads, but they also have support polos and the revolutionary fit blanket. Anatomic is actually going to be at some of the national shows in Ontario this summer exhibiting their products and they have a try before you buy where you can take the product out try it on your horse and see if you like it before you actually purchase it which I think is fantastic discover the innovative product line on Instagram at anatomic and at www.anatomic.com go check out all of the new colors and testimonials and I will let you get back to this episode but that's a huge accomplishment, especially being with him for so long and going through that process. I mean, that's yeah, it, and it's it's something I am, you know, really proud of because, like I said, you know, not knowing how to train a horse to that level and then trying to train a horse to that level at the same time as learning how to ride that level is it's something, you know, it's it is it is a it's it's very like you said, it's very intricate and, and technical and uh, trying to do something well is not easy. Yeah leading to another question that I had for you in terms of training, which I'm sure you do more of now and you're, do you, do you train quite a bit of, uh, in terms of horses that are at your facility or are you just strictly doing the show horses, which still involves training? So that yeah, no, we, yeah, we, uh, right now we have, um, there's 12 horses at the farm. Um, some of them are retired, some of them are ponies, but, um, the majority of them are, are in our program and get ridden every day and have a regular training training program you know not all of them are projected to be grand prix horses kind of thing but um we have a couple homebreds and uh stuff like that so yeah we do um have a training program for them all and i i do a lot of the riding so what i mean I, it's very hard to nail down especially being a, a dressage rider but what would you say are some of the fundamentals that a young horse should have I mean, with any career, but also geared towards dressage, like when you're sitting on something that's younger and quite green, what are the basic fundamentals that you're trying to kind of employ with that horse? And what's a good feeling when you're riding one of those that, you know, you're going in the right direction, potentially, hopefully in the future to be kind of a, a, a successful dressage horse. I think for, for me, um, a horse that has a good brain, like a good mind, like right from the beginning as a young horse uh, is, is huge. You know, a horse that is brave and athletic, for sure, all those things are, are positives. But I think for, you can, you can never, you know, there's no one that has a crystal ball saying that this horse is going to go to Grand Prix, you know. Yeah. But um, for sure, those, those things as a young horse are, are key. Good basics, I think, are, 
are huge. And I think that's something that sometimes is overlooked because especially with having, you know, like a young horse that you've, you've bred and you're raising it as a foal or you've bought a kind of a three-year-old or whatever. I think the, the groundwork is just huge, you know, like having a horse that, that will respect you because, you know, we're dealing with 1200 pound animals that are just pure muscle that could, could hurt you at any minute. So you have to kind of have that, that mutual respect with the young horses. For a dressage horse, I think one of the biggest things to look for is, is a good walk because, you know, a trot, you can kind of maybe not necessarily change, but you can, you can train it to kind of be a little bit more buoyant or add some cadence and stuff like that. But, but a, a walk is really a natural walk for a horse is really tough to change. And it is such a, a point killer in a dressage test. Like if you have a horse with a, a bad walk, it's, it's really hard to, to score high because a lot of times the walk is a coefficient all the way up from, from training level to Grand Prix. And for anyone who doesn't know what that means, it's meaning those points are doubled um, in the test. So rather than being out of 10, that point would be out of 20. So for a horse that has a, a, a lateral walk, you're, you're kind of scoring a four or a five. So therefore you're, you're, you're halfway down right now. You're, you're, you're at an eight or a 10 out of 20. So that's a big, uh, it's a big point loss when it comes to, to showing and, and a good walk usually leads to a good canter. You know, they're kind of interchangeable. So of course, not every horse is going to have a walk for, for a 10. Um, but, but a natural, a natural rhythm in the walk is, is pretty big to, to kind of look for in a young horse, I would think. That's so interesting. Also, yeah. I have a dressage background, so you can spell everything out. For okay, okay. Everyone listening, I'm a complete hunter jumper person, and yeah, you know, I try to be technical with flat work, but I, it's not to the extent. But can you explain your version of a good walk? I mean, you are you are a judge as well, right? So yeah. super helpful for everyone listening to kind of get if you can articulate what that would look like in the horse, and I, I'm sure it's more naturally how the horse is moving because you can't do as much as a rider to, to create a walk. You don't have much to work with there, but yeah, yeah you kind of articulate it for us. So, I mean, a, a good natural walk is going to have four beats, you know, like one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. When you're kind of looking at a horse to kind of judge if they have a good walk, I guess, just kind of a dumb it down type way is if you look at the kind of both the left legs and as they come together, if they make the tighter, the triangle that they would make is, is more of a, a, a better walk, right? A lateral walk is a lot of times when the horse will move both left legs together and both right legs together, almost like a pacer that is in dressage is not, it's not scored very well. <laughs> a, a lateral walk is it's scored quite low. So yeah. So you want to have just like a natural four beat rhythm. Like I said, if you kind of look for the, the triangle of the legs, the, the more closed the triangle, the better the walk is, meaning the horse is kind of bringing that hind leg under a little bit more, the more open, then the, a lot of times the rhythm's a little bit off, stuff like that. I had it once explained to me in a dressage clinic that looking for a horse that's doing a really good extended walk is almost like envisioning like a leopard walking through the jungle, you know, like the horse kind of lowers their body and get, becomes really extended in their in their their frame and their, their striding kind of thing. Oh yeah. No, that's super helpful. You're looking for like almost independence in each leg opposed to like something shuffling and not reach. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So cool. Well, I could just pick your brain about everything. <laughs> we'll just move on to the questions and see how much time we have. But as a judge, when you're looking at elements in a test, just say, let's say like a mid-level there's a lot of different like verbiage used and different words that are used to describe the way the horse is moving. And I wondered if you could kind of go through a couple of those that we don't hear in hunter jumper land as much, or even with eventing, you would hear it more so because you have to do the dressage test. But, you know, there's a lot of different things that describe the rhythms and the, the momentum and the movement. Can you maybe just think of a couple of those that come to mind and explain what they actually mean and what you're looking for as a judge? So I, th I think like cadence would be like how, in a way, how long the legs are kind of off the ground. Like if you can picture a, a Grand Prix dressage horse doing like Piaf or Passage, they have that kind of like airtime with their legs. You know, I would, I would, a lot of times you kind of would see a comment like more cadence, like they need to kind of be up in the air a little bit more, a little bit more kind of bouncy in a way, you know, impulsion is used a lot in, in dressage and uh, you know, that's kind of, really just like the push from behind you know like everything in dressage starts 
from the hind legs forward, you know, and you hear that all the time, you know, like more hind leg, more engagement, all that kind of stuff. And it's just that kind of thrust and power um, from the back end in pushing into like a steady contact, mm -hmm. you know, that, that rhythm and that the German riding or the German training scale is still, you know, used to this day, you know, rhythm, suppleness, connection, like all that kind of stuff. So without, you know, the bottom of the pyramid is rhythm. So leading all the way up from training level to Grand Prix, you know, the horse needs to just have a steady balanced rhythm, you know, right from the bat, from the beginning to, to kind of progress up the, the levels. Because again, if you, if you can't establish a steady rhythm and it's same with, with jumpers and hunters and eventers, right? Like you want to kind of have, you know, I would think, especially in the hunter world, you want to just kind of have that, that steady rhythm throughout the entire test that, that it looks easy, you know, and, and that's to make it look easy is, is a very difficult thing to do. Right. But that's kind of the end goal. You look at some of the top dressage riders or jumpers and, and it just looks easy to them, but it's been a lot of work for them to get to that point. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know? With your judging experience, is there anything that pops out in your head as something that comes up as the biggest issue or challenge when people are doing their tests? I mean, any, any day, any competition could be completely different from, yeah, yeah. from one to the other. I'd say like the first thing that kind of would pop into my head for that question is often seeing riders moving up before they're ready. You know, I think I do judge a lot of eventing, um, the dressage portion of the eventing. Um, and I think that's kind of a common occurrence is that people want to jump higher. They want to run faster. And, and the dressage is just kind of a get through it in a way, yeah. for, especially for the eventing world. Um, and for dressage as well, like everyone has that goal of riding in tails and doing that pre-St. George test. And the, it used to be the tails in the top hat, but now the top hat's been dismantled. But um, <laughs> I would think that that would be generically one of the main things that I see as a judge is, is riders kind of maybe going up the level before they're ready or before they um, are, are confident to, to move up to that level. Um, you know, as, as a dressage judge for the eventing, seeing horses running around the ring in prelim in the dressage test that can't do a 20 meter circle really, really makes me question, are you going to like, those, they're jumping really, really solid jumps out there. So I think that maybe coming down a level in, in really preparing yourself for that, that next jump is a, is a huge thing. And same with, you know, like straight dressage shows, horses coming in that are just maybe not ready for that level. And I'm not saying that everyone's going to win every day, you know, like somebody's mm -hmm. got to win, somebody doesn't, but um, just having that kind of confidence in the, in the, the training to back what you're in, you know, like a kind of a rule of thumb that I've kind of always been instilled with is, you know, you're, you're kind of schooling a level higher than you're, you're showing, you know, just to build confidence for the horse and for the rider, you know, no one that's just learning to do flying changes is showing or should be showing third level, you know, because the, the third level in dressage, the flying changes are added. That's one of the new movements that are added. So if you're just learning the changes, then you probably shouldn't be competing in third level because you're going to probably not have the best ride if you're not feeling that, that confidence moving into it. So, you know, it just kind of discourages riders and, uh, and, and the horses as well, right? Like putting them into that situation where they might not be ready. Yeah, that's Fabulous advice. And also kind of interesting thinking about the eventers. It's the same across platforms in terms of the hunters and the jumpers. Our flat work is going to still always be 80, 90% of the course, right? So yeah. how rideable and adjustable is your horse? So that's very interesting. And that's why dressage is specifically interesting because it's just so um, technical in terms of a typical program for a horse in training that's maybe has a year of under saddle um, under its belt versus a horse that's showing Grand Prix, what does their day-to-day -day look like? Or what does their training look like in a span of a couple of days or a week? And how do you go about structuring that? Uh, so really, I don't, there's not, I mean, there's obviously there's a difference between the two horses. Um, but in, in our program, there's not a huge change I, I would think that in a way that we would kind of school you know school yeah. one to the other um the horse that's maybe been under the saddle for a year young horse might 
we'll probably go three, maybe four days a week for 20, 25 minutes kind of thing. Just, just again, building that confidence, just really establishing that kind of basics, you know, go forward into the contact, you know, circles, like all that kind of stuff. Um, just putting on those basics um, in our program, we don't necessarily ride kind of the tricks that often. It's more of, of, of training the gates and, and, you know, building on the, the collection and, and the engagement. And then in a way the the tricks or the movements kind of come uh, easier from that. So, you know, we will, we do run through the movements, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll school half pass one day or, or pirouettes one day, but kind of each day we, we kind of, we'll pick kind of some, a movement in a way or, or, or a, an element of the test that we're kind of competing at um, and kind of pick it apart as opposed to schooling every movement every day kind of thing, you know, like, and, and we'll try to like have one day kind of blend to the other. So if, if starting on Mondays, it's a little bit lighter day. Um, you know, we start off all the horses, whether they're the, the top horses or the young horses with, uh, you know, a stretch long and low and just kind of slowly start adding the, the compression um, of the collection and just kind of we'll blend one day to the next. So, you know, we might work on half pass one day and then tomorrow we'll work on canter pirouettes because it kind of blends, blends well with it. You know, when you can control the hind end, you can control most of the movements. It makes sense that your repetition comes from getting consistency in the way that the horse moves and listens to you opposed to like getting consistency because you're drilling and drilling and repeating and repeating those. Yeah. Okay. So this is another question that I just was thinking of as you were talking. So in my experience, a huge issue with horses in terms of maybe not even on the soundness. It's, it, it, it's a fine line between whether the horse appears sound or not, but the actual hind end engagement issue in, in like the hunter and jumper world, people really struggle with getting their horse to travel correctly and engage the hind end. We, you know, we have a lot of stifle issues over time and hawks and so on. And the horses tend to like to lean on their front end and people run into this very consistently. They don't understand the feeling. They don't maybe understand the mechanics. Can you speak a little bit about, I guess, where you would start with exercises to build a horse's hind end engagement and what you're looking for in terms of the feeling as a rider, because people ask about this all the time. Yeah, I, I mean, that's probably one of the most common questions you hear um, going to teach a clinic or something like that. You know, I, I, I do teach hunters and jumpers and, and all that, all different kind of aspects when I do clinics. And that is a common question. And it's probably one of the most difficult questions because, yeah. you know, as you, as you know, as a rider and, and teaching a feeling to someone is super difficult. Yeah. You know, it's just kind of, it's easy for you to kind of say, you know, put your leg on and, and into the outside rain, all that kind of stuff, but kind of learning that feeling is super tricky. But I think for the engagement question, like transition after transition after transition, you know, like a lot of times you, you can't do enough transitions and it doesn't mean walk, trot, walk, trot, walk, trot, walk, trot, but just transitions, even within the gate, like forward and back, forward and back kind of thing within the trot or within the canter, because every time you feel that kind of push forward, that's the feeling you're kind of looking for. And you want to look for that for every stride. So, you know, you might, this ride, you might get it three times today and, and you kind of just keep looking for that feeling. And then hopefully you can get it four strides and five strides and, and down the road that, you know, maybe you can get it for a full circle. And, and it's just a, it's a huge progression and it's a, it's a constant everyday type thing. But, but yeah, I think transitions are, are a huge exercise, you know, like an easy exercise that, that people can use for that. You know, you can add trot poles that kind of get the horses lifting their legs a little bit more. Hill work is a common, you know, any vet will tell you that stifle issues will benefit from hill work, like strengthening the stifles. Um, so all that kind of stuff plays into it. But I think the ideal feeling is that you want to feel that your horse is kind of taking you forward, like taking you with them, not that you're kind of slugging, slugging out and in, in running with them, but that, that stride that the horse is kind of lifting you up and taking you forward is the like end game that you want to look for. And like I said, like, you're not going to get that every stride, <laughs> yeah. but, but that kind of feeling in the back of your head of like, you know, when you go from kind of a halt 
right to a trot, that feeling of that horse pushing with that hind leg is the feeling that you want to get within the trot and within the canter gate that you're, you're kind of moving forward somewhere. You're, you have, you're going somewhere in the ring, you know, you're not kind of just riding around aimlessly that you're kind of, whether you're riding jumper hunter or whatever, like that you kind of have that you're heading to that, that place in the ring and you're not kind of just like riding around aimlessly. That's really helpful. And you articulated it really well. <laughs> I think people will be able to wrap their heads around that. One of the things I think also that they struggle with, if they don't have like that, any dressage training or background in dressage is the collection, because I think a lot of people can go around with their horse and, you know, ask it to move forward and ask it to come back, but yeah. they lose all of the engagement in the collection and they don't even notice that that's happening. So can you speak a little bit on that and what you're kind of looking for and how to connect the horse? So when you, just when you describe that, my first reaction is you asked too much with the hand. And that's just a common thing for any, any rider that's, that's learning or even any rider that's, you know, a pro today. A lot of times, you know, you see some riders are a little bit kind of stronger in the hand and, you know, that when you start to think that you've stopped the horse in the front first, well, then that's, everything's going to go backwards. So coming into collection, it's, and again, it's, it's a progression. You're not going to get on a horse on a Tuesday and then expect them to know how to collect on a Friday, right? Like it's, it's a, a progression for, for dressage horses at years, you know, they, uh, there's even rules that like, you can't show pre-St. George until the horse is seven. Um, and, and a Grand Prix horse can't show until they're at least eight. And if you have a horse going Grand Prix by eight, that's a, that's a pretty super horse, you know, usually 10 to 12 is kind of when they're starting Grand Prix 13, 15, you're kind of starting to do it well. And then hopefully by, 17 they've got it down so it is a huge progression when it comes to collection in that respect but but again kind of the feeling of of collecting more with your body rather than the hands is, is a big big thing to think about that you're that you're able to kind of slow the horse down and set the horse back a little bit with with your body and your seat as opposed to going with the hands and of course that's easier said than done in any in any way um, but a horse that's kind of stopping or, or losing that impulsion in that collection, most likely the rider's too much in front or not, a, not enough kind of with the legs to keep the horse engaged coming into the contact. Yeah, so good. Well, I was going to say like, for, for example, like the, the pee off, again, to kind of like simplify it, it's like the horse trotting on the spot. The pee off is the most collected and most engaged movement in dressage. So whether, even though the horse is on the spot, that has to have the most engagement and actually like the longest top line of any of the movements in dressage, which seems kind of weird because the horse is like just on the spot. But uh, if you watch a horse pee off quite well, you know, they drop their hips, they lift their back and wither, and then they kind of stretch over the top line. And, and that's the most active and engaged movement that, that you should have in dressage and it's on the spot. So it's, it's not something that happens overnight, but the progression of that, like, that connection and collecting from from the hind leg first is where you kind of want to go yeah and that's so interesting and that i might be getting off topic but those types of elements do you usually train on the ground do you like what kind of strategy do you have with a horse that's kind of ready to learn a little bit of that and and what does that look like so a lot of yeah for sure like um we would start that stuff on the ground whether it be on the ground with a rider on them or on the ground in um, like a side rein, like in a lunging situation. But a lot of times you kind of start with, with the, the half steps is what you would call it at the beginning um, with, from the ground. And it's a very, like, again, a, a technical and intricate thing to teach. So I, I don't recommend anyone just kind of try it off of a YouTube video. No, um, not what I'm encouraging, but just, no, yeah. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, for, for sure, we would, uh, we would start them on the ground, um, just getting them to know that, you know, that little lift their leg in a way is kind of where you would start it. And it, it's a, a long-term process as well. And then once they kind of understand that, then, then you can try it, you know, with a rider on, with still having someone on the ground. And that's, that's kind of the beauty of having John every day, like me and him work, work full-time together. So pretty much anytime I'm on a horse, I'm in a lesson situation with, with John on the ground. So it works out well that, you know, he can kind of come in for, for a couple steps, a little help with a little tap up kind of thing, um, and then move on from there. 
but it, it, it does. And some horses pick it up quite easy. Like my, my little Grand Prix horse that I told you had foundered Welly. He's just naturally a pee off horse. You know, he's just like a, a natural horse that, that really does that well. And, and it exceeds with that. And it was super easy to teach him, you know, cause he just did it naturally. I actually scored a 10 one time on a pee off, which was like a huge, a huge deal. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just because he does it naturally and it's something that is easy for him, whereas other horses have trouble picking it up. So it just takes a little bit longer or, or you know, a little bit more uh, technique to kind of get them to figure out where to put their legs and, and to kind of keep in that rhythm while it's happening, you know, because starting to collect them and it, it oftentimes will, they're, they're throwing their legs everywhere because they yeah. want to kind of run forward because that's naturally what they're taught to do is, you know, when you put your leg on, they go forward and now you're, you're asking them to to go forward, but kind of stay on the spot. Yeah. Um, so it just takes, it takes some technique and uh, help, help for sure, you know? And I, the other thing I was uh, thinking about when you were saying that was, I find it so interesting, the, the enforced natural progression of the way that dressage horses are to come up in levels at the shows. Like that is something a little unfamiliar because I think there's lots of ways for young hunters and jumpers and eventers to speed through different levels of the sport. So I think that's really interesting. I didn't even know that, you know, is there anything that like an issue or a topic that's kind of prevalent in the industry that you think that people don't discuss as much as they should? And is there anything that sticks out to you? Like I said earlier, like the, the kind of going up the levels a little bit quicker than, than they should be is maybe probably the biggest that I would think. And again, it's, it's a, it's a tricky subject because, you know, like the riders are the ones paying the coaches and the coaches are the ones kind of that have the responsibility of saying yes or no to that, to that rider. And, and, you know, oftentimes they don't want to lose a student. So you kind of put a rider in a level, maybe that they're, you know, maybe not ready for or whatnot, but, but I, I think with any sport, you know, stuff like that comes along. I think for anyone kind of competing dressage or even doing eventing that's that's you have to ride dressage in scribing with the judge is is huge like I would re I would recommend that anyone that's going to compete in dressage to like try to scribe one day at a horse show just to kind of see through the eyes of the judge so a lot of times we're we're the ones that are the mean the mean people telling you what you didn't do right or whatnot but but having having sat in the booth with other judges myself uh, it's it's so eye-opening as to like why those scores are being given and the angles because again you could be sitting on the side and think well I thought that looked good but then from the front it might look like a square and not a circle so just the different vantage points and that's why at higher level dressage you get five judges you're not getting missed anything that anything you do in that ring isn't getting missed so I just think anyone that's riding dressage or has a goal of riding dressage or showing should should try to be a scribe for a day because because it's just it's a huge eye-opener for competitors that's awesome advice and and makes total sense i mean and the opportunity to do that like you said just being able to see exactly what the judge is looking for in a sense is probably yeah. very helpful okay so what is your general business structure then people are interested in how you are able to maintain your own riding career and you know what do you find you get the most return on in terms of training and competing campaigning sales what where do your interests lie and and what do you think is working about your business what have you learned that maybe doesn't work about it that kind of thing so i'm in a little bit of a unique situation with that uh question i guess because i work strictly for brayburn i'm employed i'm employed full-time um by brayburn uh, I manage the farm um, and the, the horses and the staff. Braeburn's, Braeburn's a private a private facility. Uh, it's owned by one owner. Um, so we don't really have borders. Um, the, the horses that are there are all Braeburn owned horses. So from a business perspective, you know, I, I do off my, on my own time, you know, train and, uh, or, or coach and, and also judge, obviously. So that that is kind of my side gig, I guess. My side hustle is the judging and, and stuff like that. But the judging has been great because it it helps offset the costs of competing my my horse Welly. You know, when I when I was riding Welly, um, you know, the, the show fees are are high and all that. So it just is a way to kind of help offset some costs of of owning a horse because 
anyone that has horses knows it's not a cheap endeavor and and also you know getting to to compete at some of these these big shows is not cheap i i really enjoy the coaching and that's why i i do it i i really enjoy doing the clinics and the coaching and also the judging you know i i never would have thought about getting into judging that was all john back i don't know eight years ago ten years ago that kind of put it in my ear to kind of think about it because he just kind of said at the beginning, you know, like what happens if you get hurt and you can't ride, you know, what happens when you're a little bit older and you can't ride, at least it's something to fall back on. So I kind of looked into it and I was like, I don't know if I want to really be a judge. And, and so I just started the process and, and just the more, the more I got into it, the more I really enjoyed it. And uh, so I've been kind of going up the levels um, for the judging, you know, right now I'm a level, a level M, which is like medium. And there's, there's one more level in Canada to, to get to senior. And then from there it would be FEI. So I'm well on my way in the, the judging standpoint as to like getting up there, but it is, it is a process for sure. What are your future goals? Is it definitely following the, the path to get your levels with judging? And hopefully that is also like a really, I mean, that's quite an extensive sidekick, but uh, that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah. It plays into what you're doing. Um, and is there any, you know, horses you have coming up that you're excited about or what are the plans look like for the future for you? Yeah. So I think with any, you know, any young kid that starts riding the Olympics is always kind of an end goal for, for any horse rider you, you kind of talk to, it's like, Oh, I want to be on the Olympic team. And obviously that's quite a, quite an elaborate goal to have, you know, out of, out of Canada, they select four, four people, but I think it's just keep going, right. Keep trying. And, and that's like, for me, that's kind of a, a goal. An end goal would be to be representing Canada one day on a team, you know, whether Pan Ams or world equestrian or, or something like that. Like, that's just like the ultimate goal, but, but just to kind of keep, keep going and keep learning, you know, um, for me, like I, this is a common statement you hear is like, the more you learn, the more, you know, the more you realize you don't know. Um, and I look back at myself like six, eight years ago, thinking I was like this big bad rider and and you just kind of like don't realize how much more there is to learn right especially with with dressage it's so technical and and such little finite movements and everything so that the the more you get confident in it the more you kind of start to learn that you need to learn more yeah um so yeah for sure like aiming towards a, a goal like that is 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 big in my mind um with the judging you know I want to keep keep going. FEI maybe one day is, is kind of a, a projection. Um, who knows? Because, you know, first I want, I want to, I want to ride, right. You know, once you get up there, you kind of have to choose if you're going to ride or if you're going to judge being mm -hmm. an FEI competitor, because FEI judges can sway teams, you know? Um, so you have to kind of declare at the beginning of the year that you're going to either judge or you're going to ride, but it, it isn't, it is a goal kind of down the road. I, I started young enough that it, it is possible there because there is age restrictions in the judging. You actually can't apply to FEI after the age of 55. So you kind of have to get all that stuff done before that. Um, so you have to be a, a senior judge for two years, I think, before you can apply. So, you know, I would have to, yeah. I would, I would have enough time to kind of do that. Um, so, so that's kind of, again, something that I'm just chugging along with and, and, and knowledge, right? Like I just want to keep learning and keep kind of progressing. And horse-wise, we have Braeburn owns a horse named Jolene. Uh, and she's right now, she's, she would be my top mount. Um, she's a 10-year-old Oldenburg mare. And we're doing small tour, which is like St. George I-1. And, you know, again, with her, you know, Grand Prix kind of aiming towards a team would be something that is in the back of our heads. And, uh, you know, she's got the talent for it, for sure. Super exciting. So I will wrap up with when thinking about your mentors and coaches, which you've obviously had some really extensively amazing ones. What is something that a piece of advice or just something they told you or instilled in you that kind of sticks with you to this day that you felt really made an impact on your yourself uh, riding career? First would be like, like I said, John kind of pushing me to get into judging was, was a big, a big thing that uh, looking back now is, is a very big positive. I, I did do it. And, you know, one thing that he's always told me is, is, is never get greedy, you know, and that's been a thing in his, his career and his life as well is, um, and it doesn't mean necessarily with, with money. It's just, just in general, like 
once you start getting greedy, that's when things starts to fall apart. So that really kind of sticks with me, you know, even just in training, you know, like you do, you do a line of, of changes a couple of times really well. And it's like, okay, now let's just end it because you get greedy and then it starts to kind of fall apart. So I think that would be, be one thing that's really kind of stuck with me. Um, and like I said, too, that like the, the whole saying of like, the more, you know, the more you realize you don't know, that's been just a common, a common thing throughout my, my career and my learning is like, you think, you know, a lot, and there's just so much more to learn. And from, from everybody, right. Like from all the different coaches that you get to work with and, and all that kind of stuff, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to ride with some pretty top riders and coaches through the years. And, you know, you, you pull little things from everybody. And uh, I think that's what you, you need to do in any kind of sport, you know, is that there's not one answer for, for every problem. There's, there's multiple answers that you can kind of pull from different areas. Yeah. Be humble enough to, to know that you don't know. <laughs> exactly. And that's, that's a big thing with, with, for me is with horses is it, they're so humbling, right. Yeah. You know, from one day to the next, you might think, Oh, I'm going to go out and, and kill this ride today. And then a bird flies in the wrong direction and, and the ride falls apart. And it's just like, well, you kind of just got to get back on the, on the horse tomorrow and hope for the best. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Um, okay, that was fantastic. I appreciate your time very yeah. much. The, Thanks for having me. Lots of good advice for everybody listening. And uh, I wish you only the best this next well. year. Hopefully we can actually get out to shows in Ontario too. So yeah, exactly. Hopefully. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. If you have made it to the end of this episode, I just wanted to say thank you for listening so much. I have, you know, had a lot of new listenership on here and I appreciate your guys' support. I hope that you are getting as much value as you can out of these episodes. And if there's anything you'd like me to change or add, please don't hesitate to contact me personally because I just want to create something that you guys can use as a tool in this time and a resource for your own equestrian journeys. Um, And if you have listened to the end of these podcasts, I will let you know that I have a discount code for you for my favorite equestrian supplement company, which is Mad Barn, www.madbarn.com. You can go check them out, whether you're purchasing or not. Their website is fantastic and full of resources all about your horse's nutritional needs. Um, and if you are purchasing, you can use the code SPRINGINEC, just like it's on Instagram and the website, to get 5% off your order. I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode, and I will see you next week.